and welcome to Map Bites, episode 106. I'm Elaine Giles and I'm here with my co-host Mike Thomas. In this episode, an alarmingly early start, fried liver and a very drab blab gab. Testing the teeth early there. Ah, happy to report, past muster. Now, even happier to report, a milestone achieved with the last show. You know how Minster's always poised to grab the show on its first appearance? Indeed I do. And we have long tried to outwit him. We certainly have. We've tried different release days, some longer than anticipated little breaks, uh, releasing the show at stupid o'clock in the morning, or stupid o'clock in the evening, and we've never outfoxed him. But this time, we did! He was caught completely unaware. So much so, he had to publicly admit to missing the release of 105 completely until one of MacBytes' series smoke signals reached him. Minster. Minster just needs more shows to reach peak fitness. Well, let's just see how he copes with two in almost as many weeks. He eventually caught up with us on the Monday, you know. I know, a shocking four days late. Great show as usual. Had to take the soft option and finish off listening to it in the safety of my office. Shock of a new episode. I wonder where this one will find you listening. No, it wasn't just Minster we heard from though, was it? We also heard from Graham, who said that while he loved the show, he didn't think he'd ever feel the same way about a beef burger again. Mm, I know the feeling. But in better news, I did part Graham from his cash again last week. Uh, an app that I demoed at one of the live sessions called Get Backup 3. Decent little backup app, and it was on offer for 24 hours at just £1.49. Mm, so Graham spent his money on that instead of a burger. It seems so. Wise man is our Graham. Certainly is. I'm sure you'll all recall my genius solution to Drop Zone taking one on itself and majorly disrupting my workflow. Well, a certain person <clears throat> found fault with my solution this week. How very brave of him. How very stupid of him. He claimed, wait for it, it was too arduous to use a shortcut to open the bartender bar. No, what I meant was I was leaning back on my chair and it was too arduous to lean forward and press the keyboard shortcut keys. It would have been easier just to click the bartender menu bar icon. But for the fact that having it there broke the drop zone workflow. Anyway, needless to say, I had another moment of genius and your world is now complete. I wouldn't say my world is complete, but it, what? it's better. Let's get back to his world not being complete. <laughs> anyway, it involved a new toy for me. Never mind. Right, it was better touch tool to the rescue. That's got unfortunate connotations if your world's not complete. Um, it's an app that allows you to completely control how a mouse and trackpad interact with your Mac. We, I think we briefly mentioned it as a solution to specific things that have broken in the past. Um, in this case, I set it up so a spare side button on Mike's mouse activated and deactivated the bartender bar. Now, on my magic mouse, no other buttons, I set it up so dragging down with three fingers did the same. I thought about two fingers up, but thought better of it. Um, so if you're suffering first world problems of having to move more than two inches to activate a shortcut key, Better Touch Tool is your friend. Better Touch Tool is indeed my friend. And um, I'm now able to lie back in my chair, tap on the mouse button and have, I'll do it now. There we go. My life is now complete. No, no, it's all right. Too much information. I'm getting unfortunate images here. Ah, so onward. I found a story this week about an iPhone theft that certainly gave me pause for thought. So I thought it was well worth relaying it. It was titled, This is what Apple should tell you when you lose your iPhone. 
And it's the story of a gentleman who had gone on holiday to Turin in Italy and he'd forgotten his phone in their in their rental car. So um, he'd gone for a couple of hours with the kids and returned to the car. The window was smashed. iPhone gone. And he says he had immediately did the obvious things. So he used his wife's phone to call his and it was powered off. He marked the phone lost in Find My iPhone app, entered a text to display on the phone in case it ever came back online. He clicked all the send me an email when the phone returns online checkboxes and headed off for lunch. He wasn't overly concerned because no one could access the data because it was connected to his iCloud account. And I think I've had issues where they've been swapping phones out and you do have to go through a bit of a performance to take it off the account and all, all the other kind of things. So what he was saying was that other people couldn't reactivate that phone anyway. So he got the uh, car fixed and went and bought a new phone. Didn't hear anything for 11 days. But then he got not only an email, but he also got an SMS message to his number. The email was pretty good. It, it looked like an Apple email should look. The sender was Apple and it had passed through Google inbox, Apple mail and Gmail let it through all, all the, you know, you know, the filters it has for. Yeah. Because mine, mine are overactive rather than underactive. I hardly ever get any spam in, but it does get a lot of false positives. Well, this one came sailing through. He checked all the stuff in the footer and all the links went to the right place. And as I said, he actually got an SMS at the same time. So if you think about that, where else could that have come from but Apple? Because the people who had stolen the phone only had his phone and they couldn't get into it. They didn't know who it belonged to. You could have said, well, they could work that out from surrounding stuff. But given that he was in a foreign country in a hire car, I doubt it. It, it wasn't his car where they could do some kind of checks like that. So he rushed to the address that was in the email and started typing his credentials in, but then stopped before he submitted them. Just thinking, hang on, you know, is, is this actually right? Looking at the screenshots that he's put in, they look perfect, don't they? They do. Um, there is a little bit of a giveaway, which is um, he had it on a phone and in the URL bar, there's no green lock to indicate that it is actually Apple. But other than that, it looks like an Apple page. If you think about it, you know when you're in a browser and the URL disappears and the buttons at the bottom disappear to give you a bigger view. Mm. That's a bit of an issue, isn't it, security-wise? Because you can't then see that actually, you know, that's not a secured page. But anyway, I digress. As he points out, you know, you feel a fool for having left the phone in the car in the first place. And of course, when this email comes in, it's like, oh, great. And you dash off, you you know, you, you disengage your brain at that point. He then decided to test this link out by putting in um, invalid credentials. So I think he put something like this is not my iCloud ID at iCloud.com. And you know that login that you get where it kind of shakes from side to side when it's incorrect? Yeah, a lot of them do that, don't they? WordPress does that. I have noticed because I've got one password, but I do sometimes type in my Apple ID. And, you know, if you get it wrong, it does get that shake thing, yeah. which I think I think if a fake page did that, I'd be impressed. And it did. So um, he, he had a, a bit of a deep dive into what was going on behind the scenes. And if you go into the inspect section of a browser, it actually gives you information about what, what's happening with the form data. And this form data was actually being saved back to a PHP file. So it wouldn't have let him in. It would have just said, you know, incorrect details. 
But worse than that, it would have saved his credentials on this server. So he goes on and he says, well, why, you know, why would somebody bother to do all of this? And says, but, you know, as I've mentioned, you can't activate an iPhone or any iOS device as long as it's connected to someone's iCloud account. But if you steal a phone, you can perfect the crime by stealing the identity as well. And then it's just a matter of logging in to find my phone and uncoupling the phone. You would then have an unlocked iPhone. I'd be more concerned that having got that far, they could potentially have access to credit card details and all the rest of your devices, which he didn't mention. But that is what would happen. Now, this was the interesting bit, which was how did they manage to get the email to him and an SMS to him? And he'd done his research and he comes back and he says, it seems they use the medical ID feature on the phone to see who the phone belonged to. And thanks to my strange name, found me on this site um, that looks like for freelancers. And on that site, there was his email address and his phone number. So he gives you some obvious takeaways. You know, don't leave valuables in your car. Make sure you've got a passcode on your device. Back up all your data, which we talked about a few episodes ago. And wherever possible, use two-factor authentication. And if you ever lose your iPhone, iPad or iPod, be extra alert for upcoming identity theft attempts, which is a very, very good point to make, isn't it? Yeah, it is. If you know, if anyone ever got into my phone, I don't actually have much data on the phone, but I've got access, as I'm sure many people have, to all those services, all those cloud services where your data is stored. Mm. Which you can secure to varying degrees. But the first thing I thought of was the medical ID thing. I remember thinking that that was a bad idea. And I mentioned it back in shows seven to, uh, 97 and 98, which was the autumn of 2014. I think that was when it was brand new. And I know that it only has the information that you add to it, which was a point that Alistair made. And he's quite right. But you know, without adding that information, the, the entire feature is useless, isn't it? Because you're putting that in so first responders have access to it. And I think I made the point at the time, I'm incredibly allergic to penicillin. So that is critical that they know that. But, you know, for them knowing that that was my phone and I'm who I say I am, etc., you know, you, you see name and, and, well, let's say first name, surname, and you will fill it in. And that was what was concerning me at the time, because once you've lost control of the phone, you lose control over who does what with that information. You lose control of your life, really, don't you? Uh, there's a potential that you could, yes. Mm. So my alternative approach was um, an in-case-of-emergency, which is ICE. Um, and what I've got on my home screen, it says, you know, I am allergic to penicillin. And it doesn't include my name or contact details at all. Well, how does that work, then? I've included yours instead. Oh, cheers. You're welcome. <laughs> but, you know, seriously, having your phone number wouldn't help them unlock my phone, would it? Can I just say, we'd all have more to worry about than your precious information if I got abducted. I mean, who would corral the crew and get the show out? I'm beginning to wonder if I could even pay someone to take my phone away. Oi, don't be cheeky. So really just a case of being careful, I think, both with your phone and in terms of what information you put in it. I I checked, actually. I've got nothing in the health app. No, I haven't. Is that because I'm not healthy? Well, there's a possibility. <laughs> um, mine's in the folder with, with the icon. You know, the pile of poo icon? Oh, yes. With all the other stuff, like stocks. It's in mm. there. Mm. Yeah, we, we might revisit that one day. Who knows? Anyway, news of a surprising demise last week, too. Blabby's our IP. 
Yeah, I missed that. I was surprised it didn't make more headlines on its demise, because it sure did when it arrived. Uh, but I guess that in itself was a surprise, because Blab offered nothing more than other services. Either didn't provide at the time or can't provide, but the internet as usual was seduced with a trendy name and a ton of hype. If you are blissfully uninitiated, and I do wish I were, Blab offered real-time video chat with text chat next to it. You could screen share, but there were no dedicated tools to support all the extra things that screencasting involves. But there were folks building a business on it. And I noticed the following morning in my Twitter stream, uh, there's a guy whose business is teaching English as a foreign language to business people. And he's actually got a graphic which is advertising live sessions for like a week, two weeks in hand. And on this thing, it said live blab sessions. So I thought, and I wonder how that's working this morning. So I went and had a look and um, I wondered if it went directly to his site or if it went straight to blab. Uh, and unfortunately, it went straight to blab. So it was 404ing. But the worst use I saw it was um, for, for Blab was when Adobe started using it for a product demo. Just think about that. This is the same Adobe who have their own enterprise level platform that does all Blab did and more besides. But there they were subscribing to the latest trend. It actually just shows the power of a fad because it was a terrible, terrible experience from Adobe. As a demonstration, it was appalling. So much so, I wrote an entire blog post about it, about how they should have just used their own platform. It's like most of these systems, though. I'm sure most people are just going to play around with it. I think that was that was what turned out to be the problem. Yeah, they actually detailed what went wrong in a post on their site. The site which promptly vanished, I might add. Yeah, I did actually find the post on Medium, which was called Blab is Dead, Long Live Blab. Great title. Um, so let's, if we go through the edited highlights, uh, okay, let's rip the bandaid off. Today is the last day of Blab. We're shutting down the website and app and focusing 100% on our new project. Oh, good grief. The old one's not cold yet. You really got to love that startup mentality, haven't you? You have, yeah. It's, the, it's a buzzword, isn't it? So what went wrong? Alas, things started off so well. We took a hackathon project that we built in three weeks and grew it from zero users to 3.9 million users in less than a year. The average daily user spent over 65 minutes per day on Blab. So what went wrong number one? Most live streams suck. Of the 3.9 million total users, only 10%, around 400,000, came back on a regular basis. Why? because most live streams aren't interesting enough to justify stopping what they're doing to watch your broadcast. The struggle with live streaming is that we need to show you something awesome that's being made right now. And it turns out that's really tough. It killed Meerkat and Periscope and Facebook Live are feeling the pain right now. Do you know, 65 minutes playtime and people are spending all of it or some of it doing the next big thing. And I think Blab's problem was they became the last big thing. I mean, I don't think I do anything in a day for 65 minutes other than work. Do you? No, I don't. Or drive, maybe. Um, yeah, Mia Catton and Periscope. I actually did want Periscope from a train station only because I wanted to see what it was like. You see, you, you are the problem <laughs> yet again. Yes. But I, I haven't done any more. That was it. 
once? No, I, I did um, two, I think. And I did one from a conference we went to and that worked. You know, it was my first Periscope. And once it's in your Twitter stream, people go see it if they're there live. So you're back to that. Uh, but what if I missed it? You know, because people aren't sitting on Twitter all the time. But I got a lot of interaction and feedback from that. And I did it with my iPhone 6 Plus. So the quality was fantastic when I watched it back. The second one I did was behind the scenes of a live session of mine. And I used my iPod Touch. Not so good. Um, the quality was poor. And if you consider the one I did when I was out, I was on 4G. And the one I did when I was back here was on Wi-Fi. So it should have been better. I think the device was struggling with it. But you're right. You made the point of I've not seen too many people saying I'm going live on Periscope on Twitter anymore. And neither have I. Continuing on with what they said, we hoped the replays would help, but less than 10% of all watch time was on replays. Why? Because the off-the-cuff, unpredictable nature of live streams makes for terrible replays. The better the live stream was, the worse the replay will be. Now, I can't agree with that. Neither do I. But then I guess it depends on what the content is and who's posting it. Yeah, if there are certain things that are useful that you just happen to miss. Um, and you know, there are things that I've wanted to watch, which I'll come back to shortly. Then it's, it's, it's like anything. If the replay is there, you want to watch it, you'll watch it. But if it's somebody at a train station just periscoping a picture of a train track, then... It's not exactly interesting, is it? Well, then it gets on to who the person is, because if it was Eric Cantona, you'd watch it. <laughs> uh, that's true, true, very true. Or Craig. But with more on Craig later. Okay. Well, I wouldn't, not with Craig. Well, Eric, no. yes, not with Craig, no. Um, Craig's for the ladies. <laughs> Shall I carry on? I think you should before you get us taken off air. <laughs> uh, reason number two. This is, um, yeah... Reason number two, uh, making content versus making friends. For the past six months, there's been a growing divide between two groups of users, people who use Blab as a way to broadcast to an audience and people who use Blab as a place to go to hang out with friends. It was exciting to see some big names like ESPN, the UFC, Tony Robbins, Cisco, Adobe, IBM, SAP, Product Hunt, use Blab to interact with their audience. But that's the problem. Surely they're not just hanging out. They're there to sell. The minute you have a new service of any description, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen this. I know it depends on who you follow on Twitter or social media, but the minute you have a new service, you will have millions of blog posts with 10 ways to fill in the blank with Blab. And it'll be promote your brand, build your business, build your email list. And that kind of, well, it would put, it would put me off. You know, all those brands are there. They're, they're not there to spend their time with you. They're there to build a brand to, to sell to you. And like I said with Adobe, Adobe have Connect. So what on earth are they doing on Blab? Cisco have got WebEx. So what are they doing on Blab? It just strikes me as fear of missing out syndrome writ large. Exactly. They, I was, I was going to say testing the waters, but there's no need to test the waters, waters when they've got their own uh, toy. No, because if you think about Connect, I mean, I'm not as familiar with WebEx. I've used it, but I'm not as familiar. But with Connect, it's been around for 15, 16 years. It's a mature product on a solid platform. You do not need Flash to use it, as I haven't got Flash installed and it works fine for me. 
it's got a bad name maybe because of the the links with Slash. But when you've got a system like that, that is very, very good, why would you be using something that's not as good? That's why I don't understand with these companies. It just smacks a bandwagon jumping, doesn't it? Yep. So carrying on with what they said, the majority of usage came from everyday people just hanging out. They weren't making content, they were making friends. The best content creators used it less than once a week for less than two hours. The people who were hanging out with friends used it for five or six hours per day every day. Five to six hours a day. Who has that much time? The same people that now spend five to six hours a day at Pokemon going. This could be, the, the two could be related. <laughs> Pokemon <laughs> Go's the new blab. Of course, you could always blab your Pokemon Go, as it were. Well, you could, but not anymore. I don't know, could you blab from a mobile device? Well, blab's not there, is it? Well, no, but if it were. Oh, if it were, yes. You move along. Why was it so addictive? Maybe we should ask that question about Pokemon Go as well. Anyway, why was it so addictive? It was a place to unwind after school or work. Like a virtual pub. Without any scheduling or planning, you could find your friends hanging out on Blab. The lounge was always on and the conversation would rage through the night until the sun comes out the next morning. Sounds romantic. My- it's sounding like the hitman and her. <laughs> I, sp- I spent many long nights writing essays on the last minute with the hitman and her in the background on the TV. I spent many long nights coming in from a nightclub and watching the hitman and her. Typical. There was I working and there was you enjoying yourself. For any of our younger listeners or non-UK listeners, just go and Google Hitman and Her. It'll save us explaining. (laughs) (laughs) It was a good show, that though. It was, yes. Um, Do you know, I did something quite techie to watch that. You'll like this. In, In the room where I was at university, my desk faced away from the TV. I mean, obviously, incredibly bad planning, but it did. It faced away from the TV. So when I'm working typing up my essay at four o'clock in the morning. I couldn't see it. I could only hear it. And I couldn't have it on that loud because obviously I disturbed the people who had the foresight to finish their essays earlier. So genius solution. It was a low-tech analogue solution. But guess what I did? Go on. I moved the mirror onto my desk, pointed it at the TV and then watched it through the mirror. So you're watching it backwards? Yeah, but you didn't worry about that. (laughs) It just added to it. And did you watch football backwards and wonder why we were winning when we were losing? No, 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 because I had the foresight not to be trying to write an essay at the same time. <laughs> right. Um, I was. Oh, yes, I know what I was going to say. Um, I wasn't sat there writing an essay. I had a low-tech solution recovering from um, an alcohol fuel night. I'm not even going to inquire. No. Right, Hitman and Her. I should point out here, I did not know him then. He came to his senses after that. Yes. <laughs> Uh, my team is here for one reason. That's not my team, that's Blab's team. I'm continuing reading this blog post. My team is... Oh, yes, I'm sure they've not lost the plot yet. <laughs> I have. My team is here for one reason, to build a product that millions of people will use every day. Really? Not build the best product then? I just think if you build a great product, at least you've got a frame of reference getting beyond, I want to build something that millions of people will use. If all you want is millions of people to log into your site for five hours a day. May I suggest I have the answer for him. Provide unlimited content of an adult nature and you're done. See? Solution. Wasn't there a report about that on the BBC? There was. I might have to put a link to that. But as, <laughs> as it was an ad- of an adult nature, move along. Blab was great in many ways. That's not me saying that. That's quoted from this blog post, by the way. 
<laughs> yes. Although the, the, these opinions are not my own, they're Blab's. Blab was great in many ways, but it wasn't going to be an everyday thing for millions. So we're kicking down the sandcastle. Is that like pushing the envelope? Yes, and blue sky thinking. I've never heard that phrase. I'll say it again. I shall add it to our... Oh, no, I can't say that. Oh, dear. Bingo list. <laughs> I'll add it to our bingo list. <laughs> so we're kicking down the sandcastle and rebuilding it as an always-on place to hang out with friends. And let me guess, it's not ready yet. Spot on. Joy. So, we can expect another startup beater that is hyped to glory and disappears up his own exhaust pipe within months. Just in TV went the same way, didn't it? It did, and content creators were given very limited opportunity to salvage their content that they'd hosted on Justin TV. Yeah, I actually had, as I said before, a list of Blab replays that I wanted to catch up on. Good luck with that, because content creators on Blab were given zero chance to save the content this time. When do you think these perennial startups will finally realise that in order to survive, they have to build something sustainable and generate an income? Um, it's a very good point. I used to work for a startup many years ago and that company and many other companies in the same kind of space had, I think, similar mentality. I think they need to hit a sweet spot between the big dream of changing the world and the sad realisation that they do have to eat and that seed money or investment capital isn't a bottomless pit for drawing their salary from. I don't see how Blab distinguished itself sufficiently from what was already available doing a similar job. I thought of Skype, Google Hangouts, and another one that I can never pronounce. It's O-O-V-O-O. Is it Uvo? Don't ask me. I've never heard of it. But that's been around for a long time. And the first time I saw Blab, I thought, well, it just looks the same. So I'm not seeing how the new Blab will differentiate itself either. And always on lounge. I mean, they had that already. And they've taken that away but I went back and I, I looked at the post the one we've been quoting from on Medium and there are many many positive comments on the post now there are ways of course that, that those comments can be brought to the top and I didn't read every single one but the ones that were there had been recommended by the author obviously uh, and they were at the top and they were thanking the developers for creating Blab. One said that it gave him the push he needed to podcast. He'd always wanted to podcast, never got round to doing it. Started, I guess, sharing content on Blab and then created a podcast. And another said that he'd been in a really bad place with depression and that he'd found kindred spirits on Blab, that he could be himself. He didn't have to put like a, a fake persona out there. And that's great that they found something unfortunately now of course it's gone so i don't know what they're doing now and there's also these positive users probably aren't the teams or enterprise level user who would ultimately pay for a service like that anyway you know we've talked about um dropbox and evernote and a lot of other services where they've now got for business a different pricing structure for business and it wouldn't be there if they were making enough money from end users and I think Blab had that same problem. It could have been a fantastic platform for content sharing um, for people who would have paid. You know, there are people who pay for things like GoToMeeting. Yeah. Which is expensive. They could have charged half as much and made a fortune. But you know, they obviously don't want to do that. But I'm not seeing how it's going to survive in the future. But I'll, I'll wait to be amazed. Yeah, I think it's watch this space, isn't it? Oh, do we have to? Uh, anyway, talking of mistakes. Never mind Blab's mistakes. When it comes to mistakes, 
Apple have been known to make a few corkers. And this week, they've been admitting them in an interview with Tim Cook, Eddie Q, and wait for it, Craig. Ooh. Did you notice the most prominent photos were of Craig? Uh, yeah, it was hard to miss them plastered all over the recording notes. Anyway, never mind Craig. Ooh. What do you think they claimed their biggest two mistakes were? Um, that, that rectangle thing that we all got the money back for. Bumpergate! That's the one. And inviting Bono on to that keynote. Tim has obviously completely forgotten those two disasters. Um, I can't think of any others. Oh, I can. There was Tattoo Gate. Your watch doesn't work if you've got a tattoo. Then there was Beard Gate. Gets stuck in the phone. Seam Gate. Hair gets stuck in the phone. Are you remembering these now? Uh, they're coming back to me, yeah. Bend Gate. Surely you remember Bend Gate. That was sitting on it and it broke. Yes. If you take a lump hammer to an iPhone, guess what it bends? That one. Oh, certificate gate, which was um, all the certificates died and they had to issue new ones and then all your apps stopped working. That was a corker. I'm putting in this category, killing my beloved iWork, which brought me on to nuking Aperture, which in turn brought me on to. Do you remember that iPad, uh, an iPod mini? Uh, they, were hor- they were hideous colours. One was maroon and they were chunky. No. They were really wide. Do you remember them? No. Oh, I think they called it the, the fat iPod. They, they were grotesque. Uh, they, they only lasted about 10 months. Then there was the bin. They've never updated the bin, have they? No. Have you forgotten the bin? No, I remember the bin. The Mac Pro? Yeah. I would say with matching monitor, but that was another saga. Then there was that case. You know the one for, not iPad 2. You remember the magnetic case on iPad 2? Yeah. They brought one out after that that had a back on it. So it had the magnetic front thing, but it also had a back on it. It was the most hideous case on the planet. And they still tried pushing it. It wouldn't even stand up. The, the, they took away one of the... You know how it folded up into a triangle? Uh. They took away one of the bends in it and it just kept collapsing. It was hideous. So there was that one. So those were just to name a few. And I was ignoring the myriad errant updates over the last few years. Brickgate. Oh, yes, you had one, didn't you, that you talked about in the last episode, when it bricked your iPhone? Oh, yes, I'm not sure that was the last show. But, yes, it, it bricked it not, not long ago. The worst mm. one was, though, I think it was the first time it bricked it, because I just sat looking at it, and it took me four hours to get back to where I started from. So, not great. So, can you think of any more? Because you're not even warm yet. <laughs> um, what about the last four keynotes? Eddie Q's dad dancing's got to be up there. <laughs> well, yes, I found it embarrassing, but I'm afraid not. No, you're not even warm. The two they came up with were, number one, Apple Maps, and two, John Browett. Ah, in the midst of all the others, I've almost forgotten those. Well, apparently, Maps needed a bigger team. I'm not sure how that would improve things. Apparently, it's difficult. But I just think with with Maps, they just jumped the gun, didn't they? They took away... Wasn't Google Maps the default, and then they just flipped yeah. it for Apple? So. Yeah. For people who didn't know any better, who could go away and get Google back, you know, what worked yesterday isn't working today. And I'm not surprised they got a lot of stick for that one. Um, and Browett wasn't a good fit. Mm. As anyone and everyone who had ever visited a Dixon store told Apple before they hired him. 
I wondered how long ago that was, because on the one hand, it seems a while. And on the other, no, the full horror of it's still there. But he joined in April 2012 and he left in October 2012. So he only reigned six months. Oh, a bit of a David Moyes moment. Yes. He went on to Monsoon. Apparently something to do with fashion. Don't look at me. No clue. And then, and I didn't know this, he's now moved somewhere else. He's gone to Dunelm. I'm sure most people who are listening won't know who Dunelm are. No, but I buy things from Dunelm, so I'm not pleased. <laughs> Dunelm is, um, well, it's a Dunelm group. I don't know if it's international, but it, it's certainly in Britain. And um, they, what would you say, Kitchenalia? Um, more than Kitchenalia, house, household stuff. Yes, I kind of get lost at the Kitchenalia bit, but they do do a mean drink. So that, that's why I'm in there. Actually, you know, I, I can't blame him for this because it happened before he arrived. But you know the local one, the local Dunelm? Yeah. Yeah, just so people go. It's a shame there's no smelly vision, but um, just in case you're not aware of where it is, it's not far from the Trafford Centre, uh, next to the sewage works. So it's usually quite ripe when you visit. But the thing that gets me with that one is they used to have the coffee bar downstairs, and I was happy with it downstairs. They've now put it up on what can only be. Dis- it's not really a proper floor, is it? It's more a mezzanine level. Yeah, it's more of a mezzanine. Yes. Now, given its proximity to the motorway, every time a juggernaut goes past, the floor moves. Oh, the earth moved for me, all right. But actually, I just felt nauseous with it. So I can't blame him for that. But I'm thinking, maybe I should write to him and tell him and see what response I get. Ooh, loving this. Anyway, while I was looking up where he was now, what did explain a lot was that he was the head of Tesco's for five years. More on Tesco's later. Uh, Tim said he's proud of the way they dealt with it when it became apparent he wasn't a good fit for Apple. I don't think he should be proud of that, as the collective horror at his appointment wasn't, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, anyone who knew Dixon's knew it was a disaster waiting to happen before they hired him. And I think Apple should have known that too. I mean, did they talk to him? Did they read anything about him? Very good question. But it's a close run thing between all of those for the biggest mistakes, isn't it? Well, now you've mentioned you too, I'm thinking that was one of the worst, given what they paid you two for the privilege of spamming the customers with it. But I've got to admit, I do think Browett slightly edges it. But there were so many, weren't there, when you look at them like that? I know you can laugh at some of them, but honestly, they're not averse to making an odd mistake, are they? So what were the two things, the worst Apple mistakes over the last 10 years? I think the MacBiters should let us know what they think. Mm, I think I think they should. I'm sure some of them will have suffered some of these um, gates that uh, we, we, we seem to be bombarded with. We have a lot of those. Anyway, why don't you go on to tell us how you use your Mac to train Windows apps. Okay, I will do. Uh, There are times in my day job when I have to work from home. Hard life, isn't it? Terrible. I do it because sometimes I deliver training at six in the morning to colleagues on the other side of the world and no way am I getting up, getting ready and driving into work to be ready to start a course at that time of the day. By the time I finish two hours later, there's no point driving in. I could actually get another hour's work done instead of sitting in rush hour traffic. Sometimes I deliver at six in the evening, so I don't want to be caught in rush hour traffic at the back end of the day either. Now, I've got a work provided laptop which connects to the Wi-Fi at home and then connects to the company network via a VPN, a virtual private network. 
One of the major issues is speed. It doesn't matter that we have a 200 meg broadband uh, connection here, the bottlenecks at the other end. And the biggest issue is when using Skype, which we use all the time for instant messaging, for audio calls, for presenting, for desktop sharing. Um, as an example, somebody might instant message me with an Excel problem, wants to share their screen and talk. And if either one of us is working from home, the quality of the audio is often poor and the connection often drops. And you spend half the time saying, can you hear me? And the rest of the time trying to add in the missing words. I think we discussed in a previous episode, Norman Collier, didn't we? Oh, Norman Collier is fabulous. Yeah. I'll put a link to a video. For anyone who doesn't know, Norman Collier was a British comedian who had an act where he would miss out half the words, pretending that the microphone was not working. Anyway, we also use Skype to deliver our training courses. We used to use WebEx and people would dial in via telephone for the audio. But the cost of, say, 30 people dialing into a teleconference made it expensive to run training courses, but Skype calls are free. Now, it's bad enough on a two-minute support call, but the last thing I want when I'm delivering training is to have drop connections and be a Norman Collier sound alike, as this will no doubt be reflected in the feedback. Now, just to be clear, when I talk about Skype, it's not the free Skype that most of you probably have installed on your Mac. It's Skype for Business, which is a paid-for service that we get as part of our Office 365 Enterprise subscription, where you can have online meetings with up to 250 people, you can do screen sharing and instant messaging, audio and video. So I came up with a solution to get around this problem of, uh, of Skype uh, cutting out. And then my solution was that I don't use my work laptop. I use my own iMac. Now, you're probably wondering, how do I run Excel for Windows training on my iMac? What I did is I built a virtual machine in Fusion and not only did I do that because you know, that's the easy bit. I actually mirrored the company environment because I wanted people on the course to actually see it as if it was my company laptop. So I uh, set it up with Windows 7 and Office 2013. I even created an account on the virtual Windows 7 machine with the same name as my login name at work so that the icon on the desktop has my login ID on it. I removed the recycle bin on the desktop and I even remembered to install the box sync and the OneDrive sync clients and all the other add-ins that we have in case I get questions about them. My original plan was to size the Fusion screen to 1600 by 900 to match our work laptops and then run the Skype for Business app from inside Windows and use Skype for Business to share my Windows desktop. The course attendees wouldn't actually be aware that I was on a Mac. If I got a notification through Notification Centre or I had my email open, this was on the Mac and the Mac screen wasn't being shared. All the sharing was being done inside Windows. However, the first time I did it, I had a problem with the audio, which I've not got around to fixing. I think I just hadn't configured Windows to pick up my Blue Yeti and my Sennheiser headphones. So what I do instead is connect to the Skype meeting from the Mac using Skype for Business web app. Open Chrome, copy and paste the meeting URL, which I keep in OneNote, stick that in the address bar. Because my work OneNote notebook is stored in my work OneDrive account, I can access that from the Mac. 
Now, there's currently no Mac app for Skype for Business. Uh, well, there is. It's in beta and only available via an invite um, for preview. And before Microsoft bought Skype, they had a similar product, which was Link. Now, there is a Mac Link app, which is free, but it's old. So the Skype web app has a more modern, nicer interface and provides a better experience. Now, I could fix the Skype for Windows problem, but doing it this way has the benefit that should the virtual machine crash, I should still have an active connection to the call because I'm running it through the Mac. So what I do before the training starts is I change my Mac to 1600 by 900 so that it matches our work laptops. I ensure notifications are disabled. I ensure that caffeine is on. So it's pretty much the same setup as when I deliver a webinar or record a video. I then run Fusion in full screen mode on the iMac screen and from the Skype for Business web app, I enable screen sharing, choosing the iMac screen as one to share. And my second screen has the Skype app on it so I can monitor the chat and see the attendees joining. Now, as I said earlier, we were using WebEx and teleconference and I still have to deliver the odd session via WebEx. And WebEx is accessed via a browser, so I had a similar setup. As I don't have a real telephone, I used uh, Skype, the normal free Skype on my iMac to dial into the teleconference. It was a toll free number, so there's no cost to me. And then from WebEx, I shared my iMac screen, which had the Windows virtual machine running at full screen. There was one minor irritation that when I was sharing in WebEx, there's a presenter's toolbar at the top of the screen and it's got buttons for things like stop sharing, display chat and so on and so forth. And it's hidden until you move your mouse to the top of the screen. Now on Windows, you can drag to the second monitor, but on a Mac, you can't. So the audience doesn't see that, but if I'm recording my screen, it's there. So that's a minor problem. But one day when I was de delivering an Excel course, I found, well, I didn't discover, somebody told me a more serious issue. People on the course started telling me they couldn't actually see my mouse pointer, which is a little bit important, especially when in Excel you're showing things like copy and move because the mouse pointer changes. So after the course, I tested this by logging into WebEx as an attendee from my work laptop and confirmed the problem. It's not a problem in other apps on Windows or the Mac, just on Excel. So now if I have to deliver via WebEx, what I do is I run WebEx from Internet Explorer in my virtual machine, and that way it's self-contained in Windows. And I set up Fusion so that it uses both monitors and I can drag the WebEx toolbar to the second monitor. It sounds like the Mac is your friend when it comes to working from home. Yeah, it's actually really good for delivering Windows stuff. Yeah, I've seen you try and deliver on your laptop from work. And it must be a struggle because you're, you're, you've got the conferencing software running. You've probably got Skype running. You've probably got a text chat running and the app that you're demonstrating. And you've only got one screen. Yeah, whereas, as I say, I can be running Fusion, um, I can be running web conferences software, and very often I'm also running um, ScreenFlow to record the session. Now you know why I have three large monitors. Yes. No, it is. It's easier, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I've had two for years. Um, I went to three when I got a newer iMac that supported um, dual Thunderbolt. So I've got two Thunderbolt chains and the monitors are at the end of them. But... 
mainly day to day, I probably use two monitors quite a lot. The third one will have something like Spotify on it or something like that. But when I'm in a session, I put the stuff that I need to monitor. So my broadcast software, my chat software, possibly email, anything that's, that's to do with monitoring the session goes on the right hand one. And the reason it's on the right hand one is that once it's over there, it stays over there. The stuff that I might want to use just to check something quickly goes on the left one. Rationale being my dock is on the left hand side. So if I do it that way, I can minimise stuff to the dock and bring it back without it actually passing over the screen in the middle that I'm sharing. So the Mac is way more flexible, but the software's got to catch up with it from certain people, hasn't it? Like WebEx and GoToMeeting. Yeah, I actually have, normally I have my dock on the right, um, but when I'm training, I move it over to the left and that way it's not uh, going to be seen on a screen share or a screen recording. That's why mine is either on the left or right. I did have mine on the right for years. Um, I moved it to the left when I got a secondary monitor because for that very reason, that if it was on the right, the right would be the screen I was sharing. With three monitors, it's not. But what I have to think about, you know, when you minimise something and it, it kind of gives that whoosh down to the dock. Yeah. You don't want that flying across the main screen, which it would. It doesn't just disappear. It kind of literally minimises to it. So if I minimised anything on the right hand monitor, it would go across the middle monitor and then sail down to the dock. So that's why I have the stuff that's always open on the right. So it never passes over the centre. The other benefit for me is, you know, when you alt and tab. Yeah. I don't mean alt and tab, do I? I mean command and tab. Oh, dear. Windows coming back to me to haunt me. Um, you know, you, you get your open apps that displays on my left hand monitor. Now, I think that's possibly something in system preferences that I've not changed. But when it popped up over there, I'm looking at my main monitor thinking, where is it? Where is it? And then I realized it was on the other screen. And actually, I quite like it on the left because it means when I'm delivering live sessions or I'm doing recordings, I don't have to edit that out afterwards. It automatically appears on another screen. So, yes, the Mac is very flexible when it comes to delivering stuff like that or recording. So, after tormenting the poor Mac biters with a teasing preview of your adventures in Tesco, are you going to go into detail with a full horror? Oh, indeed. Here with full sad sorry tale of tech fail that very nearly caused a riot. Can I just say that after the incident with the peas, I'm usually relegated to the cafe in shopping locations, lest I cause another scene. What incident were the peas? Before your time. Mum wanted about 20 tins of peas. No, I don't know why either. But mine was never to question the formidable MacBytes mum. So in I go and collect 20 tins of peas. All was well until the assistant said, and I quote, You like your peas, don't you? Earplugs. Stat. I mean, what has the content of my shopping basket got to do with her? If I book 300 people on Photoshop courses, I can honestly say I have never said you like your Photoshop, don't you? There's a lot more sensitive purchases you wouldn't want attention drawn to at the checkout. True, but I could be particularly sensitive about my peas. Can you imagine buying a wholesale size pack of toilet rolls? You like your toilet rolls, don't you? And then there's the pharmacy. Just think of the fun they could have at basket shaming your purchases there. Let's not even go there. 
Anyway, I doubt she'll make the same mistake again as I realigned her expectations and then played holy hell at customer service on the way out. Mm. Then there was the liver we bought for the dog. Look, if I want to buy 20 packs of raw liver, what's the problem? And what did she say? You like your liver, don't you? To which you replied? I said we were cannibals and it was easier than sourcing our own. Needless to say, we've not been back there either. But that was the peas in the liver. This time, I was quietly minding my own business in the cafe. I had deposited my trolley in one of those trolley crash parks. What could possibly go wrong at that stage? I dread to think. Well, nothing. Until I came to retrieve the trolley. It was one of those put a pound coin in and the key comes out contraptions. Obviously, I am unlikely to ever have a pound coin when I need one. So I've got one of those smiley face fake coins on my key ring. So I used that. Seems innocent enough so far. It was. Until I opened the door to retrieve said trolley and the smiley face coin refused to come out again. After fiddling for a while, you headed off to seek assistance. I did and I returned with an assistant. Who couldn't get it out either. She twisted, pulled, banged and finally headed off to find a manager. Two of them returned, had another go. No joy. The manager then sent the assistant off to get a screwdriver. Needless to say, they couldn't find one. This was despite the rather stunning array of equipment for sale on the DIY aisle, I might add. At which point, the store handyman appeared next. He had a fiddle with it and then sucked air in between his teeth in a I'm a tradesman kind of way, shook his head and left. The cafe was then raided. A range of knives and forks were conscripted for use in the trolley crash. Operation Culinary Liberation was on. You'd gather quite a crowd by this stage. Well, to get this far had taken 25 minutes. Sticking knives down the slot proved fruitless. She did manage to loosen a screw, though. To the point it escaped under the nearest display, though. So it was hanging by a thread? Pretty much. But it was still stubbornly refusing to part with my smiley face coin. I think the manager was at this point about to open negotiations with me as to how much I'd take for the coin rather than destroy much more attempting to liberate mine. Luckily, before we reached that stage, and with two knives and a fork deployed in a rather alarming manner protruding from every orifice of said trolley bay, the lock imploded and shot my coin out into my waiting hands. Mm, Success, and only a 40-minute job. Well, yes, for me, but I don't think the trolley bay will live to see another day. Been back since? No. Deemed it wise to keep a low profile for a while before the ASBO was reinstated, with even stricter terms. But it was their fault, to be honest. Here we go. It was! If their tech isn't up to the job, it isn't my fault if I feel an overwhelming need to prove it on every visit. But let's get past the shopping dilemma of the week. Nothing better than the sweet aroma of new software in the office. A new toy this week from Eltima. Now, they make a video player that I talked about in a MacBytes learning session earlier in the year. Um, But this one's nothing to do with video. This one is a utility called Cloud Mounter. Now, its purpose is to mount cloud services on your Mac as if they were local drives. And if that sounds like Expand Drive, it's because it is very similar to it. It's also similar to Panic's Transmit Disk. They all do a very similar job, just in slightly different ways. So I downloaded this installed and was prompted to create a first cloud connection. So you get this from the menu bar and from that menu bar, you can control your connections. So you can create new ones, you can delete connections and you can reconfigure connections. 
Now, I've discussed before the huge benefit of using software like this, as opposed to the dedicated clients that come from cloud services, because all of those that I've mentioned support creating multiple connections to the same service. So if you had two Dropbox accounts or a OneDrive account and a OneDrive for Business account, all of their clients can only connect to one account, but these can connect to multiple ones. So OneDrive for Business is actually supported here because that was one of the things I did to test it. Uh, my OneDrive account was fine. It didn't actually mention OneDrive for Business. And I think I said to you, is this now one and the same or is OneDrive for Business still different? Yeah, we did have that discussion. Um, it is, it's different. It's two different services. It is, but they're kind of rolling the clients into one. Originally, you needed a OneDrive client and a OneDrive for Business client, but now the OneDrive for Business is all rolled up in the OneDrive app, isn't it? It is. From from the app point of view, it, it it's together, but they are still distinct services as far as... Well, because it wasn't mentioned, I wondered if it supported it. So I connected to my OneDrive and then I set up another OneDrive, but in this I didn't, there was no way to say to it, oh, this is OneDrive for Business, but I just picked OneDrive as the source and then put in my OneDrive for Business credentials and it connected. So it obviously is supported. The API is obviously the same, um, but they're not actually sort of saying a OneDrive for Business here's a dedicated connection to it. Another one that wasn't listed was Box. And Box, I've got 50 gig with. So I really fancied making sure I had a connection to that. So I went up to Box and I had a look around and Box supports WebDAV. So I thought, well, CloudMount has got a WebDAV connection, so I'll create one. And all it really needed was um, a URL, which is dav.box.com slash dav, and then your usual username and password. The only problem was um, I had a problem with, with the Box account. It was the only thing I did have a problem with. Uh, and it was to do with corrupt files. So um, Box, not great. But in use, all of the other services I connected to, so Dropbox, um, OneDrive, I connected to some FTPs, I connected to S3 with Amazon, all of them worked flawlessly. Now, they don't give you a, uh, an icon in the main drive list in Finder, which if you've ever used Expand Drive, Expand Drive does. But you will find your connections under the machine, um, your iMac machine or whatever, whatever Mac you've got, you'll find it under the name of the device. And what I did like was the connections themselves have got custom icons. So whereas with Expand Drive, you just get this ugly list of grey drives, you actually get custom icons here. So if you do have, you know, one Dropbox and one OneDrive and one uh, something else, then you'll see that you get dedicated icons for them. So it's just that, that fraction faster to access the stuff. They were listed in Pathfinder in the bar on the left-hand side with custom icons. So I really like that. It really worked well. Now, previous versions of Expand Drive, when they were working, because sometimes they weren't working at all, they've been a bit fragile. So I tend to be very careful how I work with those remote volumes. What I'll probably do is move files sort of maybe in batches of five rather than 50, 
just in case, because they are very fragile. But I decided I would stress test cloud mounter. So I really went for it. Oh, had a whale of a time. Um, I created multiple new folders. I moved stuff to those folders. I grouped existing contents into new folders. I deleted files, created new files, and I moved multiple files to multiple locations. And I thought it's going to fall over. It's just a matter of when. And I was amazed it didn't. It kept up with me. Um, obviously, it wasn't as fast as moving files locally, but it wasn't that sluggish either. And what I was doing was having um, a browser open pointing to the cloud service. And I was keeping an eye on that to see when that got updated, when that refreshed itself. And it, it wasn't too shabby. I could live with that. It's also the perfect way to transfer files between cloud services. So if you think you've got, um, I mean, I think you discussed about using box for backup and then decided 50 gig probably wasn't enough. Mm. But if you wanted to take content from, say, Dropbox, where you've probably got less than 20 gig and transfer it to box, you'd have to pull it down and then push it back up to box. But with both mounted using Cloud Mounter, you can drag straight from Dropbox over to box or indeed any other combination of services. So I was sitting there thinking, let's see, oh, that'll make it fall over. And it didn't. So, no, I could not make it fall over. Uh, you can use the preview um, with the space bar in, in the usual way as you would with local files. So select the file, press the space bar and you get your preview. I actually loved the way it remembered what connections were active prior to a reboot. And when I rebooted, it automatically connected to just those drives. Now. Expand Drive works where it will start after a reboot and it will connect to drives that you have specified you want it to connect to on startup, which is slightly different. You may be in the middle of I me. Mean, I'm usually in the middle of working when it demands to be rebooted. I may have connected to sort of two extra drives, then need to reboot. And then what I would need to do based on the Expand Drive principle is then connect to those two extra drives. But Cloud Mounter remembered what I was connected to. So a little bit of a time saver. For that to work, it does need to be set to run on login. But I do that anyway. But as I say, no need to configure individual drives, which is a bit of a time saver. Now, I went round looking at the website and I was interested that this was actually in the App Store. Because I thought it would need to rely on some extra supporting software that Apple would disapprove of. And um, there is a question on the FAQ. Does Cloud Mounter require any third party packages to be installed? And the answer was for performance and stability reasons, it's recommended to have Fuse for OS X installed. Cloud Mounter will use this package when it's available and will fall back to OS X's native file handling capabilities when it's not. So far, so good. But I was still thinking, surely not or it wouldn't be allowed in the App Store. And then at the bottom, it says, note, the, the above only applies to the version of Cloud Mounter distributed through Eltima's website. The Mac App Store version will not use Fuse regardless of its availability due to Apple sandboxing restrictions. So I know I've got Fuse installed because Expand Drive's using it, but I actually found that Cloud Mounter was far more stable and far faster without it, because the one I got did come from the App Store. It's one of those occasions, isn't it, where you can get the software either direct or the App Store, and your decision 
isn't actually to do with the App Store or the developer at all. This time it's actually to do with the functionality of it. So I do have Fuse installed, but it wasn't using it and I actually found it better. I might be tempted to download the trial and see how that behaves on another machine, because if it's only as good as Expand Drive, I actually think the one from the App Store is better. A couple of things to think about, though, if you're thinking about buying just one of them, there's no Windows version um, of Cloud Mounter, whereas there is a Windows version of Expand Drive and it's one license for both versions. Now, I did mention the bug that I found, which was when I added a box account via WebDAV and tried downloading stuff, some of the files were corrupt, but they downloaded fine through a browser. So what I did was disconnect and reconnect and it seemed to solve the issue. But unfortunately, it then comes back. Now, that could well be why there's no dedicated box connection settings yet. I also asked, uh, I sent uh, an email to the developer um, and what I was interested in was um, when you add drives, you, you, I mean, they all look the same, don't they? These things where you add connections in the back end, you get a list on the left hand side and then you click on them and you get the details on the right. And I wanted to reorder them and you can't yet. And I thought, that's so basic, but hopefully they'll fix that. Um, I think it would be nice to have selective mount on startup where I, I give it a clue which ones I'd like on startup and, and the reordering's are definite. Um, I'd also like to be able to group drives and then mount or unmount them as a group. That would be a bit of a time saver. Um, I said they'd got custom icons, which they have, but in case I've got two or three of, of the same service, I would like to be able to customise the icons as well. That that would help. But to be honest, for an initial release, it's really solid and I'm certainly looking forward to updates. I'd say it's definitely worth taking a look at. There is a trial version available. I'll put a link in the show notes. And I just think it's the number one way to make sure that you get full benefit from all the cloud storage space that you've acquired over the years. Because as we've been going through our personal cloud series, I hope you've been keeping up and signing up for all of the extra space. And this way, I mean, I thought Expand Drive was okay. It's, it's good when it's working and as long as you're careful with it. But I found that this one was a little bit more stable and robust with it. So um, the price in the Mac App Store at the moment, I do believe, is $10.99. You might just want to check that. It was on offer last week. I think there's a, a couple of pounds off it. But it's actually cheaper than Expand Drive as well. So um, definitely worth having a look at that one. Oh my, it looks like you've got a bargain. It's gone up to $22.99. This is because I'm giving it a good review. Oh dear. <laughs> Well, you might want to wait until it's on offer then, uh, but I, I can recommend it anyway. So I have a, have a play with, with the trial download instead. Uh, I've got something else that's, that I think is cheap at the moment as well coming up. So um, better make sure that's still on offer, hadn't we? Yeah, uh, right. It was, so I go um, and click that now. You better go and check that, hadn't you? But I think it was all right the last time I checked it. Yeah, um, on a previous app review, uh, it was MacBytes 90. It was a couple of years ago, July 2014. And we compared some apps that allow you to upload content and then share a link to it. We mentioned three in particular. There was Cloud App, Dropler and Dropshare. And the last time we looked at it, Dropshare was the winner. Uh, it was an app that was available via the App Store. It was $2.49. The alternatives, both Dropler and Cloud App, were $99 a year, which was why Dropshare was a huge winner in that. Um, all of those apps have 
iOS companion apps and they all offer desktop sync. The difference between Cloud App and Dropler and Dropshare. So Cloud App and Dropler worked one way, Dropshare worked another. And the difference was the cloud space and where it came from. So in Cloud App and Dropler, they include the storage space for you. So it is a one-stop solution. You just log in and you don't really have to do anything. The, the space is there and you just start uploading your stuff. With Dropshare, it was a bring your own storage solution. Now, it supported a range of options. So you could use Amazon. I think I put my mine on S3, but you could also use FTP and other things. And that was what explained the huge price difference because you were providing your own storage. What you were paying for was an app. With Cloud App and Dropler, their apps are free because you're paying for a service. Now, I didn't actually have a problem paying more for the app because I thought 249 was ridiculously cheap. But things have changed. Where are we now? Well, Dropshare got updated and version 4 was released. A very different beast. It left the Mac App Store completely. And the price jumped from $2.49 to $24.99. Yes, $24.99. Now, before you break out in a cold sweat, developers have to eat too. And it is difficult out there. I don't know if you heard about this, but Kaji went bankrupt last week, taking two months of sales revenue with them. No, I hadn't heard that one. Kaji were providing um, commerce solutions for developers. And obviously they pay two months in arrears and uh, they've gone bankrupt. So I had less problem with the fact that the price had gone up. In fact, I actually had no problem with that. I looked at it and I thought, didn't I pay a, a ludicrously silly price? You know, $2.49. And then I thought, well, okay, so it's gone up. It's $24.99. Is it worth it to you? And I thought, yes, it is. And I hit buy. At which point I had more of a problem. It was licensed via Paddle. And Paddle is another one of these services. In fact, that's more like the Mac App Store. It handles both the payment and the activations. So this software is now activated and you can have three activations. But I've had a very, very bad experience with Paddle in the past where I've installed an app on one machine and tried to deactivate it or transfer it to another one and it just won't have it. In fact, on one machine, I had one application and it just deactivated itself and it won't reactivate. And I can't get any joy out of them about that. So my first concern was about how I was going to deactivate this. So at that point, with it in my basket, I went off to hunt through the support. At the time, there was a knowledge base article, because this was a couple of months back, saying that um, activations were dealt with via Paddle. Now, the reason that I'm looking at this now and not a couple of months ago is that something else has changed with one of the others. So I went looking again and I couldn't find that link. What I did find was a new knowledge base article saying um, send an informal message requesting more installs and tell them why. Well, I don't know about everybody else, but I've not got time to waste waiting around for a reply. It's like buying a fire extinguisher and having to wait for an email with a key before you can use it. When I need to use it, I'm going to need to use it. And I just don't want anything unrelated to the actual functionality of the app getting between me and my ability to use it. So mm, that's why it was time to compare again. Well, Dropshare is still potentially the cheapest option because you provide your own space. It's a single outlay of $24.99 and you can use it on up to three Macs. 
Now, the, one of the other options was Cloud App. There is a free account, and I have a free account that I still use. Then they've got these bizarrely named options, which is Rain, Storm and Hurricane. Great, isn't it? You know, we were talking about trendy names. Mm. Mm. Well, Rain, they, the difference between the three of them is the levels that they support. So, you know, what you get for it. So I'm reckoning most people would probably go for the Rain account, which is either $10 a month if you pay per month or $99 if you pay by the year. But to give you an idea, Hurricane is $79 a month, which I don't know what they're offering, but it better be gold plated. Um, there is an iOS app. I was looking and I was surprised to see it hadn't actually been updated since 2015. You tend to think of these things as updating quite frequently. But as I said, I use the free service and it's it's a good service. I've got mine integrated with Desk Scribble. And that's the thing with these services. You could do with having them as integrated as you can to get the most from them. So that is the one that's integrated with Desk Scribble. None of the others are. But my sentiments were no matter how good it was, I personally wouldn't get $99 a year value from it. Somebody else might, in which case, great, go for it. But I wouldn't. The next one was Dropler. Now, they do let you have a free account. One of the huge limitations of the free account is that the links to what you upload expire after 24 hours. So if you're using it to tweet something or put it on Facebook, you know, somebody might look at that after 24 hours and the link's going to have gone. The pro account, there is no limits on uploads. And the only limit on monthly transfer is 200 gig, which I thought was quite a large amount of data, don't you? It is. It's a decent yeah. amount. I mean, no limits on how much you can upload. You, you could, because I'm reading their stuff and I'm thinking, but surely this is for uploading a file and then sharing a URL with somebody. But when I'm reading it, it reads more like free up your hard drive space. So they're implying that another use for it would be for you to say like your your raw video files and your raw audio files that are quite large. You could drag them up there and not share them with anybody. And then you could pull them down if and when you needed them. And your only limit is 200 gig a month of transfer, which is a good way to think about it. I, I haven't used the service in that way. You can make private files. So the, the URL is slightly longer, but they're private. And you can also password protect the files with 128 bit security. One of the things I liked with it was that you can customize the download page slightly. You can add your logo and you can change the color. Now, Dropshare is much better at that. You can completely customize it if you want. But that's what you can do there. And you, you've also got the option of a custom domain. Now, as you're using these services, the, 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 the plan is what happens. You tend to drag your file up to an icon on your menu bar, drop it. It uploads in the background and it gives you a share URL and you can then put that URL wherever you want. One of the things I've noticed with Dropler, quite impressed with Dropler, it gives you the share URL before it's uploaded it. And that might sound like a, a small thing, but when I'm sending stuff to clients and it's sort of 20, 30 meg, and it's going to take a few seconds to upload or even a few minutes to upload, depending on the speed today. Um, you've got the URL. You can go to the email and you can start typing it and paste the URL in. And by the time you finish, the URL will be live and active. And I think that is, it's a tiny thing, but it does make a big difference. Another thing I've noticed is it automatically copies that share URL to your clipboard, the machine that you're working on. But 
I was doing it on another machine and as the link to the file from machine number two was copied on machine number two, it was sending it up there on machine number one that I was working on previously. I got another ping and a notification came up and what had happened was it had synchronized that. So it knew that there had been a new upload and it had automatically copied that on machine number one's clipboard as well as machine number two, which I thought was quite handy. Um, it supports lots of different file types and some it will play in the browser, which was how come I noticed it's hosted on Microsoft's Azure platform. Because when I clicked play on an audio file, it actually changed the URL and you could see the Azure URL. Um, one thing that you noticed, which I hadn't noticed because I wasn't downloading my own stuff, was that when you download the file on Dropler, it does lose the file name and the file name takes on the extension of the URL. So the URL will be something like d.pr slash one, two, three, four, five. And your file, no matter what you called it, will download as one, two, three, four, five dot whatever the extension was, which you weren't pleased with, were you? No, that was going to be a showstopper for me, but I've since changed my mind. It's an annoyance because one of the things I was going to use it for was transferring files up to, to customers. The thing then is when they want to download them, they get a file with a strange name on it and they might think it's spam or, you know, well, yeah, I agree. I think it is annoying. It, it It is a definite annoyance. I'll probably email them and ask them about that um, because I did email. In fact, no, it wasn't an email. They've got this support window that's actually inside the web interface to Dropler. And I left a message there about tags because you can tag the stuff as well. So I think tagging it is a big advantage. It allows you to search for it by tag. But it wasn't there. I couldn't find it. And uh, they came back to me and said that that was in the in the process of rolling out in the next week. So that's why it wasn't there. So they did get back to me. Now, I wouldn't have gone for this at all, because, again, you know, ex in exactly the same way that Cloud App was ninety nine dollars a year. So is Dropler. Looking at it, having got a professional account now and having a look at it, I can see where the price is coming from. But I think you would have to use it. Extensively for it to to be cost effective for you. I mean, over 10 years, you're looking at $1,000. So you'd have to get some use out of that, wouldn't you? But this is the good bit. There is a special offer on at the moment, which is how come I've bought it. Um, at the moment, you can get a lifetime license for the pro version. So you pay this figure and you never pay again. And that is $29.99. You will have to act fast. At the moment, it's saying the offer will go off on the 17th of August, which is only about 48 hours away. But it was extended from last week. I got mine last week. Last week, the price was $21.99. Somebody, not saying who, said that he would wait. And guess what? I had to pay $29.99 for it. Ah. So um, I still think at $29.99, it's a great, great value. And uh, there's a code that I found as well, which will get you another 10% off. So we can knock $3 off that. Uh, the code is MISSYOU10. So M-I-S-S-Y-O-U-1-0. I'll put that in the show notes as well. But even at $30, I think that is a really good deal because... All of the apps, all of the Dropler apps, the apps on your Mac, the apps on your iOS devices, they are all free and you are not limited in how many times you can install them. 
the way that their billing works, they're billing you for a service. The difference is that with this special offer, you're only paying once for the service. So that's why I've gone with this at the moment. I do still think Dropshare is a fantastic app. And if it wasn't activated, I would happily pay $50 for it. But I cannot have an app where it may lock up because it's via paddle and I've had problems with them before. And then I won't be able to use it at all. So that's why I've gone for it. And you went for it too. Talked you into it, didn't I? Uh, yeah, in the end, like you said, cost me another 7 or $8 because I didn't act fast enough. So my advice to you, act fast now. Let that be a lesson to you. Yeah, Graham could learn from that lesson. Don't stop and think. Never ends well. We also heard from Colin Payne, who said, Elaine spoke of not upgrading to El Capitan because of an issue with a scan snap. Wondering what, whether it was an old model or more general, I'm happily using a ScanSnap S1300i with DevonThink and El Capitan in blissful ignorance of an issue. Oh, blissful ignorance. Now that is a joyous state. I often wish I was in that state, especially when something breaks. Colin's using DevonThink, as I am, and is happier with his paperless office being much tidier. He's got the scan snap conveniently located next to the shredder, so scan shred is the usual routine unless interrupted by Dylan, the whippet, the process is reversed. Yes, I've been there myself. He also gives us a rundown of his kit and the logic behind it. His iPhone 6 Plus has replaced an iPad for really portable stuff. It says big enough screen to handle a lot of stuff and a MacBook Air 11 inch replaced the iPad for anything else. Cleverly went for a refurbished 128 gig, only a few pounds more than a 128 gig iPad. That's a good point, isn't it? I think I said to you the prices were very similar. Yeah. And an iMac 27 inch for the heavy lifting, leaving the MacBook Pro Retina as an also ran. Oh, I never got one of those, you know. My I, my Pro is 10 years old. MacBook Pro. And my other one is a 2012 MacBook Air, which scarily is still running just as well as it did in 2012. Hmm. You see, if it was slower, I could justify an update. Oh, well. Mine's RIP. Which? My MacBook Pro. Yes, it was, wasn't it? Anyway, Colin says, mm. keep the shows coming, still great, useful and entertaining. What could be better? Well, it's great to hear from you, Colin, and you've given me an idea. Oh, good grief. Batten down the hatches and hide the sharp tools. She's on the rampage. I haven't actually tried the scanner on the one Mac that I've got El Capitan on. And I'm thinking that's possibly worth a go before I declare an emergency. What do you think? Yeah, give it a go. It's worth it, isn't it? Because mm. I just read it wasn't supported. And started ranting. I will check it. Now, Colin's using um, the 1300, 1300i. Mine was a tinge older than that. Mine is the S510M, which I could have sworn was no more than four years old. But on checking, discovered it's nine years old. It was released in December 2007. So much older than I thought, actually. But I'm still loath to be forced to bin it. So watch this space for further news after I've tested it. And big thanks to Colin for the idea. Do you know, Dylan's adventures remind me of Mayer's adventures with the printer toner. Yes, I well remember that. We were both marooned in my office during house renovations many years ago. And Mayer was somewhat quiet. An unusual state for him at any time of the day or night. Anyway, he was being an angel curled up under the desk. Yes, I fell for it again. 
It was only when he later emerged I discovered why he'd been so quiet. He'd managed to eat his way into a box containing a new printer toner. Not satisfied with that, he'd also managed to manoeuvre the cartridge open and was wearing most of it. He looked like a cross between a giant panda and a Dalmatian. Yes, I only saw the pictures, unfortunately. Trust me, being there was much messier. He was never fond of a bath, was he? No. He was a superstar, though. Anyway, that's it for this episode of MacBytes. As always, we would love to hear from you. Please send in your questions, comments and queries by email to macbytesuk at gmail.com. Use the contact form on the website or send us an audio file. No takers, I notice, after our mention of looking forward to an audio file or two. I wonder what would induce you to take to the microphone. Hmm, we'll ponder that one. In the meantime, you can sign up for the newsletter at macbytes.co.uk. You can follow MacBytes on Twitter at twitter.com slash macbytes. And you can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash macbytesiri. So until next time, this has been Elaine and Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. That's a rather large box. It is, isn't it? It's taking some wrapping. It sure is. What's it for? I'm solving her scanner problem. You've bought her a new scanner? That is so good of you. Bought her a new scanner? Yes, and you're gift wrapping it too. No, I'm sending the old one to the Antiques Roadshow for carbon dating. It could be worth a fortune by now. You are dead. You are so dead.